This happened a long time ago, when my grandpa was a young man. There was this Russian princess. Her father, the Tsar, and the rest of her family had been killed a few years before, during the revolution. You're not talking about Anastasia. Anastasia Romanoff. How'd you know? A famous movie, Yul Brenner, Ingrid Bergman. Anastasia was here in Sicily? That's what Grandpa said. It was a big secret. Oh, wow. Sorry, go on. All right, another Anastasia reference. The writers are really going to bat for Anastasia this season because we just talked about it not more than two episodes ago. Right, it was uh, the letter and remind me the name of the, it's like a mobster, something Anastasia, like is his last name? Yeah, Albert Anastasia. Okay, yeah. The Murder Incorporated, Murder Inc. Mm -hmm. dude. Yeah, that was just on the brain. At the time. Actually, did you know, I think we mentioned this before, Charles, that this episode that we're going to be talking about today was originally slated to be the season five finale, uh, but I think they just didn't finish it in time. At least that's what I, that's some trivia I saw online. I think that it works out so... <laughs> it's an okay one. Uh, I don't know if I would have liked this as the, as the finale, because... I'm, I think I'm not in the popular camp, but I don't like the episode Sicily, which I think is the mm -hmm. season three finale. I mean, I like it. I just, you know, I, I'm not as into it as, um, as, uh, a lot of the fans are. I am of the opinion of like, why, <laughs> why is this here? Why would, or, or, why is this as the finale or just why do we no, have no, no, no. <laughs> like, w like why did the whole thing? Like, what are we, uh, because what are, what communism are we doing here? is bad, Charles. <laughs> Sorry. No, but like, <laughs> what is, I, I was actually right, deeply right, confused right. on this episode. I was like, what are you trying to say? Maybe it would. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to no, no, say, no. maybe it would have made more sense as a finale, even if I wouldn't have preferred it. Like maybe it, it's like, okay, this is the big, we're leading up to this big period piece and we can advertise that on TV, like tune in for the season five finale. Maybe it makes more sense throwing a period piece like that at the end of a season where it's kind of in the middle in this one. I I, I get it, but okay. Yeah. Hang on, let's introduce ourselves. Yeah, yeah, get yeah. Into it. Let's, let's, <laughs> we're about to hop in. Well, this is like our trademark of season six is we just like, as you said, I think you said before, we just like come out of the gates uh, blazing. Yeah, just swinging wildly at the gates of Eden right here. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and I've seen Northern Exposure a lot. It's probably my favorite show. It had a huge impact on me in high school when I first saw it. And um, this season, in season six, I, I have to admit, I've only seen season six one time. I remember being caught by some very um, very powerful episodes in the season. There's some really good um, importance, I would say, to the overall story. And then there's a lot, obviously, that we've talked about, a little bit hinting at Charles that maybe perhaps goes wrong in the season or a lot, a lot, of, a lot of things change, a lot of things happen. And uh, we're trying to tread lightly, not to um, talk about any spoilers, because Charles... This is your first time watching each episode. Yes, this is my first time watching each episode. You've seen it uh, multiple times, except for one time for this season. Mm -hmm. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm watching this for the first time, and I'm just asking myself, <laughs> like, what, what, why is this happening? Because Sicily, like you referenced before, right. it was the season finale for season three. And 
it was talking about the backbone of the town, the founders mm-hmm. of it, the values that it was established on. This one is just a meeting place. Like, I don't believe that any of the people that were featured in this flashback, other than Ed's, is it great-grandfather or is it grandfather? It's like Marilyn's grandfather, who yes. Ed, who the actor that uh, plays Ed, Darren Burroughs, yes. plays this person, Emery, or something. That is the only connecting link between there. Otherwise, they're just using the same actors. Mm-hmm. And that's what confused me. Because I, at least for Sicily, you might be able to trace down the lineage. You might be able to be like, okay, maybe it's related to this, maybe it's got that. <laughs> this one is like, all right, if you substitute the actors out, the only thing that's staying is just the town of Sicily. And it's just a meeting place between two dichotomous ideologies right here. I'm having trouble understanding why this is needed for Northern Exposure, because it plays on the resemblance of the actors like mm-hmm. Rob Morrow and Janine Turner falling in love. But if they weren't played by those same characters, I I, I just don't see why this is even happening. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I'm having trouble no, articulating no, I see what you're myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of why, because that's a good question. It's like, why do we have this sort of uh, departure from Sicily, from Northern Exposure? The message, I guess we could boil down, I guess we'll talk about it once as we go through the uh, plot in this episode, but I guess there is a, like some messaging here about like, I'm trying to find the exact quote. Life is spontaneous and it is unpredictable. It is magical. I think that we have struggled so hard with the tangible that we have forgotten the intangible. And I mean, that, that is like a, um, that statement I think rings true with a lot of the philosophy of Northern exposure about recognizing the intangible uh, the beauty therein and uh, uncertainty. I think Chris goes on and on about uncertainty in some previous episodes this season. So it has some trademark ideals of Northern Exposure, but yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird story because uh, I don't mean to say weird, but in comparison to Sicily, that one seemed to have a stronger bearing on not only like where this town comes from, but what it still holds on to today, whether they knew it or not. It's like Sicily was founded on these ideals and it like sort of stays true to that in spirit without knowing, you know? So maybe there's some of that, that there's some spirit of the the message of this episode that still rings true in Sicily today. But yeah, I mean, if we have to be extra critical, I'm with you here too, Charles. It's like, why do we get this episode? For me, I just feel like it's... um. That episode Sicily was wildly successful. It was like, you know, Emmys, uh, you know, best drama series, I think at the time. And then like probably like best episode or something, you know, it it won a lot of Emmys and uh, people loved it. So maybe they were trying to um, go, go up to bat again for another like period piece episode. Yeah. I, so that, that thesis damage that you were talking about, that little (laughs) moral at the end, that would be more powerful if it was delivered by Dan Burrow's character. Yeah, by, it's not. by Ed. By Ed yeah, or by Ed. Yeah. It's delivered by uh, Mikael? Mikael? Yeah, I actually didn't catch his name until like the very end, but because I, I kept putting down like Joel's character or like the doctor character, but it's like Mikhail right. Borisnov. I have it written somewhere. We'll get to it. Right. That comes from him. And it's it's not like that was spoken in the break and everyone was hearing them talk about it. It, it was just between two individuals. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, I, I have not unless he like talked about that more. Like he said the same he thing in the town. Later. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right, that's not hitting very hard for me in terms of that. Yeah. I felt like this is, it's paradoxically too heavy handed, yet there's too many things running throughout it that makes it very loose. I see what you're saying. It's like very, it's messaging is heavy handed, but it has multiple through lines or messages that it's trying, it's kind of getting diluted as well. Yeah. It, it was strange because mm-hmm. I felt like they were kind of textbook remarks or rebuttals against two ideologies that most everyone knows about the pros and the cons of them, the mm-hmm. capitalism or communism. Most anybody can identify the strengths and weaknesses or look at a history book and know and know which one fell in 1991 and which one is still thriving now. I just didn't see it as like, even as an intellectual exercise, I was thinking to myself, I was like, I don't think this is, I think it's just missing like a story, like the overall, like the, the, the engine, like it's, it's missing something like very major. Yeah. It's really just kind of like an argument, as you said, between two different ideologies with a beautiful setting, wonderful production design good acting. But I think that's the problem when art is political. And I'm not trying to say that this episode is like incredibly political, but I mean, in a way you could say that like there are some political ideologies that are represented in this episode. And if something is just, um, you know, art, I guess I, I, I'm not, I, okay. I, I'm not a, um, professional critic, uh, you know, I also am not like a professional art critic or anything. I don't want my words to amount to whatever, take, take this with a grain of salt. This is just my own opinion, but I think some art can be an argument, but I think, uh, most movies that are just like arguments aren't, I think what you're getting at Charles is that, you know, we come for a story for entertainment, but also something that, you know, maybe transforms us on some level, but it's kind of hard to do that with just a, uh, an argument. It's not like an essay, you know, a film is not like an essay. Maybe it can be, but our, our typical forms of entertainment usually aren't like this episode. Right, right. This one I had trouble stringing together why exactly it needs to feature Northern Exposure characters. Yeah, like what if, how weird would it have been if, I mean, how interesting would it have been if we just like tuned in Northern Exposure and it was in Sicily, but we, maybe we had like one or two descendants, but it was like a lot of, like a whole new cast. I think that would be that would have been like uh, daring, I guess. Yeah, like I think that would have made more sense. It, it just that. Uh, so I think we could just start talking about it uh, for yeah, the episode. The top end. So the general gist of it is that Marilyn is having problems with her leg, mm-hmm. and she's having such troubles because she's working a second job. She has a night job, and it's all an effort to buy this commercial good, a laser disc player. Mm-hmm. But instead of going to Joel, which I'm still wondering about, because she works at a doctor's <laughs> office. She's like, I, I'm going to go to Ed. Maybe well, she's more comfortable with Ed. She did, no um, she did see Joel, but she also sees Ed afterwards. Because Ed says something like, maybe you should just listen to what Dr. Fleischman says and uh, quit your oh, night job. But okay. she does. she does still go to Ed for a second opinion here. Okay, got it. Well, she goes to Ed, and and they have this theory that says, like, all right, well, film can be the answer Mm -hmm. to what ails us. And I I, I can buy that. Yeah. I can get along in that groove. I'm like, all right, yeah. 
Lessons that are found in media can be the cure. There's a lot of impact that these fictional worlds have on our real ones. I'm, I'm all about that. I thought that's where, and that's where I thought that this episode was going. But it felt like it was like a, I took a field trip for like 42 minutes and I just <laughs> came a, out the other frame. end. Yeah. It's yeah, just I was a frame like, story here. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is happening? Um, but yeah, that's the overall story is that. And then we have like the, the, the story within the story. Right. Yeah. That's just the frame there. I think it's a pretty interesting uh, use of a frame. And yeah, I do love the idea that Ed is, he he's a self-proclaimed healer. He's like training to be a shaman, but he's also a filmmaker and film is like his art, his medium uh, of, of work. So he's very familiar with it. Also, there's an episode uh, that we've already watched where Leonard talks about the importance of stories, how stories can be healing. So this totally lines up, makes sense. And Ed is going to film Marilyn because um, she thinks there's some, Her Marilyn brings this up herself. This is not something that Ed figures out. She says, there's probably some connection between my leg pain and my grandpa's stories because I've been dreaming about my grandpa a lot. And uh, she knows this old story she keeps thinking about, but she, it, it's a story that her grandfather told her, but she never remembered the ending to it. But Ed's plan is to set up a camera, film her, tell the entire story as she knows, and maybe we'll figure it out. He he um, invokes John Cassavetes, famous film director, saying that uh, John Cassavetes would shoot the movie without knowing the ending, and he found the ending as he made the movie. So maybe that's maybe we can find the ending just by you like actually speaking it out, not thinking about it, telling it to me. Your form of storytelling uh, might inspire an ending out of this. Pretty cool. And we played that opening soundbite. That's kind of like the beginning of Marilyn telling this story. But um, I guess this is a little further on, but I think it's an interesting device as a frame because um, normally in episodes like this, you got to be like uh, thinking about scenes where, so the point of view of Marilyn's story is her grandfather, Emery Whirlwind. I think she calls him Tauniak which means back because he was real strong. He'd carry things on his shoulder. I wrote that in my uh, my notes. So that would be like our point of view for this story. So then when you see scenes between like Joel's character and Maggie's character, you're like, wait, was Emery there? Like, how do we know about this? <laughs> but the frame is, um, as Ed is like editing the footage later, the footage of Marilyn telling the story, it's actually pretty cool. There's like, um, I think Chris is over there and they're looking at the, like the little movieola or whatever that's called, the little movie editor bay thing. There's like a um, a scratch on the film and um, it's like all over the footage, unfortunately. But as you're watching the footage or as Ed is watching the footage, the scratch on the film like tears open, like left and right, and like rips open and then we see we're transported. So it's not just Marilyn's point of view of her grandpa's point of view. It's like this whole magical film experience that Ed, this journey that Ed, as you said, field trip that Ed gets to jump into. Yeah. And the pivotal figure in this field trip is Anastasia Romanov, uh, the grand mm -hmm. duchess, Nikola, I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't speak <laughs> Russian of Russia. The very mysterious, uh, daughter. He passed away supposedly at the age of 17. She's spun a lot of different stories about like whether she actually survived, what kind of conspiracy was it? Was she associated with Rasputin? You know, she kind of became larger than life. So mm. in a way, I can see it. I can see the writers being like, well, what if she came to Sicily? Because yeah. her life is already filled with so many, so many interesting factoids. So right. that's 
kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, we get, uh, I let me figure out the name of that actress real fast. So that is um, Tushka Bergen is the name of the actress that plays Anastasia Romanoff. And we've got, of course, Darren Burroughs, who normally plays Ed, is also playing Emery Whirlwind, the sort of like um, field guide who guides uh, Anastasia to Sicily. And then we also are introduced to Countess Marina. Uh, I think Countess Marina something or other is what Marilyn says in the narration, but that's played by Janine Turner, who normally plays Maggie. And at this point in history, the town of Sicily had been founded 10 years prior. So that episode, Sicily, that we watched, that was like 10 years before this would happen. And if you look at the exterior, it kind of looks pretty close to modern day Sicily with some like specific um, period touches. So it's like a lot easier to dress. If you if you think back to that episode, Sicily, it's like all just like facade, like Western storefront with just like muddy streets and stuff where they obviously shot that probably in like a, another location. But this is actually shot in, I'm assuming, uh, what, what you would call Rosalind, Washington, but they dressed it up to make it look like... Um, back in the day, Sicily, and they got like the bearded nail instead of the brick. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? We've got Shelley and Holling or Sally and Abe. Those are the characters from Sicily and, and Mace Mowbray. Uh, he's the richest man in town. That's that's Maurice, but now he's a good guy. He, used to, he was like the outlaw from that episode, Sicily. Also, Chris is back, but now he's like a preacher. He's not an outlaw anymore. He plays a, a preacher named Kit. And... Um, what, what, what do you got? What do you got in this uh, early parts of this episode? Yeah, like you said, we got the pretty much the same characters just cosplayed in a different, yeah, in a different format because they they share the same paths. You know, like they say, like Kit, he's supposed to be a parallel to Chris, traded in his gun for a Bible. Now he's a <laughs> preacher. He's going to be in a person on the radio. He's spreading the good Lord's word, but he's also philosophizing. He's talking about how. You know, maybe evil is needed. He's saying, like, uh, you know, you can't shine without it, which mm-hmm. would play a little bit more powerfully if they had weaved that into the end of his plot line. Like, again, this harkens back to what I'm saying. Where it is like, there's too many cooks, too many things <laughs> that are running throughout this episode. Yeah. I, you know, I just want to jump in real fast. Yeah. I did think this was a very interesting argument and a very good quandary for a preacher such as Kit to find himself in. I wrote down, how can we, or even should we, rid ourselves of the demonic? For every thought that's created, one is destroyed. I can't think of X if I'm thinking about Y. So creation, destruction, this balance. And you're right. It's not really part of his story. It is a very interesting theme to dive into, but I think it really only serves in this scene as an example to show that Kit is just not... He's not really feeling it. He's not really like inspired as a preacher. So he want he he will throughout this episode maybe explore other things. And then in the end, I think he just returns back to wanting to just be a preacher. But yeah, I mean, I wish they would have um I mean, why why invest so much thought into this conversation if it's um just sort of like dressing for um Kit to be like, I've had it with being a preacher. I want to try something new, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Wish they could tie it like- if we speed run through his plot, yeah. and we'll, we'll, we'll walk through it. But like the basic core happenstances that happened to Kid is that he gets an offer for May saying like, hey, I want to build a, you know the first automobile 
And Kit's like, whoa, like I can get behind that. There's no ifs and or buts. There's only like hard, cold science. Yeah. Get right into it. Gets into it, gets into the vehicle, has a lot of fun, then, you know, almost commits the first vehicular <laughs> homicide. How's that even like, like, you're the first driver and also the first killer <laughs> the driving? And then he renounces it because he's saying like, hey, well, you know, when I got into there, it felt like it was a disruption of nature. The squirrels ran away, the birds stopped chirping. Mm-hmm. And how do I even know that like the gases that are escaping from this vehicle how do I know that Wait, it's not yeah. affecting? I, I want this scene. Keep going. Let's talk yeah. about this scene. He's talking about like uh, climate change. Greenhouse gases. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he somehow and knows so about the future here. Yeah. Ultimately, he's saying like, nah, I'm not on board with technology. Like, I don't want to, I feel like it's against mother nature, Yeah, which I'm not arguing against that or right. for it. You know, it's, it's like just a, kind of a, it's kind of leaping. It's jumping to conclusions in a way. It's like, sure. Right. And I'm like, he would just know about global warming before anyone else. Right. But like, how was this playing into like the first introduction of right. the character of Kid? It, yeah. He was talking about like a necessary evil. He's, you know, get, whether or not you believe in that, that's what his character was postulating. Yeah. And now, instead of being, you know, relating that to the technology and being like, you know, maybe this is just something which mankind needs to balance, he, yeah. he goes back to a more conservative <laughs> viewpoint where he's like, nah, I think this is against like this mechan these machinations. They, they go God against nature. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like, you're so what? right. Cause it's like, I mean, we're, we analyze these episodes. So at the beginning we're always like, okay, what's, what is going on? Like, what is the plot? Like what, where is the, uh, what journey are you about to go on? And sometimes Northern Exposure has like a really clever way of like hiding the, the inciting incident without you even realizing it or like they do, they kind of give you an inciting incident they kind of turn it on its head. But this, if we were to take this scene as the inciting incident, which we shouldn't because it's, it's, it's not really that the idea it sets up here is not really explored. It's more of just, um, really the conversation is just a way. I think for me, as I said before, it's just a way for Kit to be like, um, yeah, I'm kind of like unsure about being a preacher. I want to try something else. But the ideas he's talking about are of little substance by the end of the episode. They don't really explore those ideas too much further. I mean, you can draw, as the audience, you can draw from it what you choose, you know? So I think it's an, I, I love the scene here. I'm not saying it's a bad scene. I wish they had, I guess I'm with you. I wish they had kind of dived a little more into that line. Yeah, I felt like they had a lot of potential to work that in and, you know, you know, maybe I'm just a big dum dum. Like, there's yeah, a we could, very big possibility. Could be missing something. Somebody, yeah, right. somebody's like, no, 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 no. There's the, the common thread is this: you're missing this. And this is why it's not making sense to you. I'm actually sure. You know, there are plenty, probably plenty of people who tie it, who can find connections. You know, too, and that's that's not wrong either. You know, right? It just didn't. It didn't read like that to us, I guess. Right, and that was that was again something that like I want to like I, I just have to dock points for because <laughs> they want to mirror Chris. They want it like they, they're yeah. doing it so obviously, yeah. even though he's not like his grandfather or anything like that. They're mm-hmm. just using like the stock archetypical mm-hmm. Chris in the morning now in the form of Kit. But I'm having a hard time trying to connect with this this fella in the past right there. Yeah. But I don't have to harp on it too hard because ultimately his scenes were like, what? Yeah, he's, he's pretty small in like this seven episode. seven minutes. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, it's not a huge, huge, huge role, but we love some John Corbett. Glad he got a, uh, he was on the call sheet that day. Uh, let's just keep rolling through the story. I think we're just going to go chronologically, but I like our method of uh, like, if something sticks with us, let's kind of 
talk about mm-hmm. it without, you know, we don't have to be beholden to exact chronology, but let's go in order here. The next thing is going to be, there's like a scene where Emery is rolling into town with Anastasia. He introduces, like, I think he's talking to like Shelly and um, Holling's character and is like, yeah, she's here and she's got, you know, she's trying to get back into Russia. So she, she's trying to have these like secretive talks with uh, V.I. Lenin. What's, what's it? Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. They're going to have some secret talks here. And uh, it's also that Lenin needs Anastasia's support uh, to win the trust of the people, I think is uh, something I wrote down here. Like the people still love like Anastasia because she's like the royalty, I guess maybe the figurehead of the country, perhaps like the royal family, whereas Lenin represents the new order, the new government. So Lenin wants, they both want something from each other, Anastasia and Lenin. Uh, Lenin's here with his doctor, Rob Morrow, uh, you know, who plays Joel, is playing Mikhail. What's his name? Mikhail. Hold on. I have it written down. Uh, Gorbachev. <laughs> no, it's like Boris. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Boris That would have been fresh. That would have been fresh on their mind, to be honest. Because that. <laughs> right. I, 1991, right? Dissolution mm-hmm. of the uh, Soviet Union. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this one aired. Um, oh, we didn't even 94. talk about that. Oh, well, we can do that. This, real. We can do that. It was the yeah. air date was uh, actually on Halloween in 1994, October 31st, 1994. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like not too far from uh, from the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, quickly going through the credits, directed by Jim Charleston. He was, he directed The Letter, which we just covered recently in this season. Uh, Eye of the Beholder, also in this season. And then before that, he directed Baby Blues, Jaws of Life, and Mud and Blood. Those are the episodes he has so far. Writers, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. Of course, uh, they wrote Sicily, so they're back for Zarya. They wrote Soulmates, Wake Up Call, Northern Lights, First Snow. They had the season premiere here, uh, Dinner at 7.30. Tons of credits. Uh, We love to see their name flash at the beginning. And the title, Zarya. I guess we can take a quick detour to talk about that. Uh, do you have, uh, there's some, there's a note on Moosecheck that I could read, but do you have any knowledge of the the word Zarya? Deeply Russian. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a name or something and then it doesn't, you know, they don't, I don't think they say Zarya in this episode, pretty sure. But this is the note I got on Moosecheck's site. Zarya, uh, I think it means sunrise. It was the radio call sign adopted by the Soviet mission control when Yuri Gagarin went into orbit. The name has persisted and endured the breakup of the Soviet Union. Originally, Zarya was located at the Baikonur Cosmodrome, but since 1973 and the Soyuz-12 mission, Space Flight Control Center TSUP has been at Kaliningrad, a town near Moscow. Following the breakup of the USSR, the town was renamed Korolyov in honor of the first chief designer, um, Zarya was the name actually painted on the side of the first space station to reach orbit, even though the station's name was changed to Salyut shortly before launch. The name Zarya now adorns the first element of the International Space Station ISS, which was launched in orbit by proton rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, 1998, November. So Zarya, I guess, has, um, at least just from this perspective, the meaning sunrise, but it has a um, a history tied to outer space and like space Mm -hmm. travel stuff. Yeah, whenever I think about outer space, 
in Russia, I think about Leica. What's that? That was the, I'm pretty sure it's the first thing that mm. ever touched space. Let me see. Nice. First animals and the first one to orbit the Earth. It was a stray mongrel on the streets oh, of Moscow. I just grabbed it and put it into a... <laughs> Okay. I don't, she, it actually has a really sad, I don't even okay. want to read it. <laughs> like I get actually really sad yeah. about that. Let's just talk about her accomplishments. Okay. She made it to space. That's awesome. Good for her. Nice. She's immortalized in history. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, okay. Let's get back into, uh, what was I looking up? Um, I was trying to find <laughs> Ramo's character's name. It's Mikhail. I'm just going to start typing in Boris because it's Boris something. Let me do a control F. Mikhail Borisovich. Mm. <laughs> so just add a Ovich after Boris. Yeah, that's the doctor here with uh, Lenin, and Lenin's very stressed. He wants like more pills or something like that, more powders. Uh, let's see. I wrote down in my notes that Joel and Maggie already arguing, pointing fingers. Who's murdering who? I have written. So they're already in this, like, I think this is the the Sicily Chapel, and they're trying to do their peace talks. This is the first time they meet, and Joel and Maggie are, I guess these characters are in a similar situation as Joel and Maggie, who are constantly arguing, it seems, in Northern Exposure. Right, and I believe that the Countess Marina starts off the conversation by saying that you thieves stole everything my family had. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no landowner. I have none of my... Um, I have none of my land left. And I think that's actually kind of interesting that I'm thinking about it because I, I actually misspoke. Uh, whenever Mace and Kit were going on that jaunt with that vehicle, mm-hmm. it wasn't like the first automobile. Because right. the Russians came in on automobiles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. I think they were trying to design like the first like off-road, off-road. type of... That's yeah. Correct, that means they're trying to cultivate the land. Mm. That means they're trying to like... Get a little control over Mother Nature right here. You got some conversations of land. It's very much what Maurice would want, right? Like the Maurice mm-hmm. character wants to um, put, a, put a grip on and control the last frontier here in Alaska. Right. And there's also, you know, it's always been a popular conversation in communist talk or capitalism talk. I mean, like, well, can you really own land? Yes, you yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Or you can't. Can you tax it? Blah, 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 blah. Um, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> like, yeah. That is uh, a very interesting thing. So I can see the thread that's like kind of coming here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of yeah. connecting right here. But like you said, already Countess Marina and I, I'm just going to call him uh, Michael. Michael, sure, yeah. If that's okay. <laughs> yes. Because um, that's how that's my brain reads his name. <laughs> Mikhail. They're already at each other's throat right there, and I think you already established it before, but Anastasia is here as like a mouthpiece of sorts, mm-hmm. and that really comes back throughout the rest of the episode because they want her as a bargaining chip, but they're not willing to give her any actual power. Right. They're saying like, um, you know, there's no way you can run like this agency. We're not going to give you that. You're simply just here as decoration so that people can be more accepting of us after the fall of socialism. Yeah, her position would be like purely symbolic or what do you call that when it's like, like I guess the queen was not a, not necessarily a political entity, but more of like a figurehead or is that what you would call it? Oh, um. Yeah, neither was a word. Because it's not a monarchy. A monarchy straight up means like the king is in control. Right, right. Sort of just like a cultural figurehead in a way. What government is England? <laughs> That'll tell me. 
Uh, the word you're looking for is ceremonial. Ceremonial. Okay, yeah. She's it's more of like a ceremonial role. Yeah, that's that's a good word for it as well. Um, but yeah, so at least at first, these talks are, you know, it's more as you were saying, Lennon's like, okay, I mean, you're 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 not gonna have any power, whatever. Like we're here, we're negotiating, but we hold the power. You have to agree to our terms. And it's interesting. I put I, I noticed this uh, my in my watch through was in this scene, like, um, someone offers, like, food and drink and Lennon waves it away. Uh, towards the end of the episode, they have many talks, but in, like, one of the final ones, he's, like, stuffing his face, eating things, and he's just, like, a lot more receptive. Something about the uh, the lifestyle in Sicily, the jazz music from New Orleans that we see later, like, changes his opinion. Uh, we'll get to that. But let's just uh, hop into the next scene where... Mace Mowbray, Maurice, is um, sharing with Kit this idea that he has of an off-road, horseless buggy. He says, Alaska doesn't have roads, but you won't need roads with this invention. And um, very fitting to Chris's character, uh, who John Corbett's playing Kit. Uh, we know Chris loves motorcycles and machinery and stuff. So he's all on board with this idea. He wants to hop in and... Um, do you have anything you want to say about this scene? It's, it's a, it seems yeah. like a short one. Go ahead. I think that that's actually like very in line with a Maurice type of thinking, um, which I guess you could say it's a Mace type of thinking because he, he doesn't want to pave a road and the road is for everybody. Once it's built, everybody has access to it. Everybody can drive on it. Everybody can navigate it. It's here to connect all individuals of all walks of life. Whereas Mace's thinking is backwards. He's saying like, no, 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 don't build the road. Get like this singular vehicle that only like one person can drive mm. that I command because I'm selling. Right. Them. Yeah. And then we'll work from there rather than form like a foundation with the roads. Uh, so I think that like that works in line. I think that's like kind of a yeah. neat statement to say. Very, very Maurice way of thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His plan. Yeah. And a sidebar on that, I, I do constantly get fascinated with roads and bridges of how they were built because there's like, I mean, without them, Jesus, because <laughs> I must have taken so much like because very often when I'm driving through the roads, I drive through a lot of bridges based on the state that I'm in. And those bridges go through like swamps and basins. The Chapalaya Basin. Right. Yeah, there's what there's a uh, I think one of the longest bridges of its type is the bridge north of New Orleans where I live that goes like across the lake. Right. A bridge that spans the entire lake Pontchartrain. Right. And some crazy like a group of people had to try to build this bridge through water, which is a nightmare in my opinion. I think I was like, <laughs> how did you even come up with this? Like, how did you even fulfill this? And I, I'm always amazed at that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Maurice is thinking, uh, definitely not the greatest way. <laughs> anyway, next scene, Marina, which is uh, Maggie's character, is chilling in her little cabin when uh, Mikhail comes to visit. She apparently she requested him specifically and, you know, she wanted to, I guess, get off on a, you know, we got off on the wrong foot. Let's patch things up. Maybe she's like offering him some food and um, there's some interesting commentaries happening here. Like uh, Marina has a servant named Yuri and um, Joel, you know, I'm sorry, I said Joel, it's Michael or Mikhail. You know, Joel's character is like, you know, you're offering me food, but why don't you offer it to Yuri here? I'm sure he would uh, enjoy some as well. And um, Marina has her own way of, you know, 
sort of sending Yuri away. Joel pretends to be well-fed. He's like, you know, in our form of government, everyone gets their fair share of food or something. But then whenever Marina offers him something, he's he's just stuffing his face with caviar and meat pies and things like that. I think this is basically, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is just Marina trying to talk with Mikhail to see if she can like somehow intervene is not the right word, but I guess like somehow get to Lennon through Mikhail, you know, like to Mm -hmm. change Lennon's way of thinking by changing Mikhail's thoughts. I don't know. Yeah. She's saying that Anastasia will publicly endorse them if she can have the power to appoint the people on the, um, is it a commission? Is that the word? I, I didn't like fully take notes on the whole political side of it. But yeah, I think it's it, it, the, the the long and short of it is like Anastasia wants a stronger role here in the government. Right. right? She wants a stronger role right here. And that, of course, infuriates Mikhail. And they get into like the classic back and forth spat where he's like, you know, the ruling class, of course, they're always going to want power. Of course, she's going to want a seat at the table. And she's saying like, you know what? Like, we don't even have enough money to get a needle so we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and knit our own socks. Like that's not even (laughs) in the conversation in here. So, you know, you get that classic back and forth argument between them and Mikhail leaves. But I do think it's important to note that you were saying that he is eating her food and they're in a way breaking bread with one another. Yeah. So that is a good point. You got to start somewhere because this develops into a closer intimacy later. Uh, The next scene is uh, another one of those sort of like capitalism, communism arguments again, because we have Rhonda, who is Ruthann. Rhonda owns her own store here. And Walt, actually, <laughs> I don't know if Walt is given a name or if he's just, what's funny is like, what if this is just Walt? Like he's that old. Yeah, what if they, they should have <laughs> just like had like younger actors play the role of Ruth, <laughs> Ruthann and Bob Moultrie Patton. <laughs> Oh man, I'm looking at guest stars. This is just on Moose Chick, but and so I don't know if this is the actual credits, but guest stars, it's like Anastasia Romanov, played by Tushka Bergen, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, played by Christopher Neem, Walt, played by an ultra bat. <laughs> and there's also Hayden Keys, like Hayden's in this uh, episode. Oh yeah, yeah. Small little bit <laughs> so, of yeah. What, sorry, what's that? Oh, yeah. Small little bit role that he plays. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Walt comes in there. He's, I forgot what he buys. But I know he, what the next person he buys. He gets um, heroin syrup. Yes. Or actually, I think he gets like tincture of opium, codeine, mm-hmm. heroin syrup. Gets the good stuff right there. <laughs> gets that. Hopefully the alum of some sort of like common thing. So he's going to take all three, mix and match, <laughs> see what happens when you take <laughs> cocaine with heroin. You know? Hey, man. <laughs> A mortal's time on this planet is limited. You can't be spending it in pain. <laughs> Gotta get that. That's true. Gotta get that heroin. Um, but yeah, and then after he leaves, Lennon pulls up because he's saying, hey, I need these bunion shields because they just don't make shoes like they used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like the, um, obviously like there's some backhanded ways of saying like this new form of government is uh, so poor that people can't even like, are, like as you, as you mentioned in the last scene, Marina points out like we don't even have a needle and thread to fix our shoes or whatever, our socks. And uh, I wrote some uh, quotes down here. Uh, I think Rhonda says this, you take away the profit incentive and you get shoddy merchandise. Um, you think you can create the person by creating the environment Environment is the determining factor in character. 
Uh, and then I just wrote down in my notes, capitalism wins again, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> yeah, you get some classic conversations right there talking about, you know, system upheaval and the environment and capital and seizing the means of the production and all of that. But I think Ruthann kind of gets the final say. She gets the last word by saying like, you know, forget what Karl Marx said. Think about what Karl Marx's mother would have said, that instead of writing about capital, if you made some capital, this wouldn't be happening. I'm not trying to make a political <laughs> statement. I'm not trying to say which one's right or wrong. It's <laughs> just like, you know, I feel like maybe at this time of writing, the show was uh, maybe celebrating the triumphs of, yeah. yeah, celebrating the triumphs of capitalism. Yeah, just as an aside, I remember... I'm pretty sure it's true. I got to like actually make sure it's true. <laughs> I want to say there's a story of uh, Gorbachev going into a supermarket in America and being amazed at the selection. Mm-hmm. Just like he was stupefied. I mean, like there's this much on the shelves. Um, and I want to say yeah. he's in a Pizza Hut commercial, right? Yeah, there is like, because I remember he passed away recently and there was like, you know, some articles surfacing about that, like uh, Pizza Hut commercial that he said. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> what a what a W for Pizza Hut. <laughs> uh, all right. Next scene, Marina is, I just wrote in my notes, she like knows about engines somehow. Like, you know, she's, she's giving advice to Mace and Kit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's because she comes to visit the blacksmith, Hayden. And um, forget what she has to get fixed like he fixes something for her but he charges her nothing for his service which is pretty pretty nice that's not this doesn't seem very hayden of this uh character <laughs> uh now we joke because hayden's been sort of like a villain not like super nefarious but like you know no one typically likes him in this season but um i, I i'm he's starting to win my favor just as a goofy um He's always up to no good, you know? Uh, so that's why Marina's here. She talks with Mason Kit and Mikhail comes in here and he's like, whoa, like, that's cool. I didn't know you were a woman of science. And, um, you know, it's crazy. Like, shouldn't, you're smart. Shouldn't you understand that socialism is the way, baby? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's saying, I think the, like the conversation kind of ends like a, a little bit against that. Cause yeah, I think they end the conversation with a monologue from Marilyn saying that, you know, maybe they were getting a little cold feet. Maybe they were rethinking their decisions because the ruling class might not need to be abolished in order to transform society. Mm, yeah. I wrote that. Maybe it wasn't necessary to wipe out the ruling class in order to transform society. Um, what is this? I wrote this quote. I agree that the old system wasn't always fair, but Marxism is not the answer. No system that denies the soul can be. That's what uh, Marina says. Wow. Yeah. Does Marxism actually, I'm not super familiar. Does Marxism deny the soul? (laughs) I feel like let's take that at face value. Let's just like assume that's true. What a, what a political system. It's like, all right, when you operate under this system, yeah, you give up your soul. (laughs) <laughs> it's like that's that sounds like a heavy trade right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have I have no earthly idea. It's her. It's like that's her interpretation of it. And I mean, that's not. It's also like I can see. I can see that like, that can be a conclusion. You can you inter- that can be an interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um. Yeah. That goes into another scene where they're negotiating over Anastasia's 
influence because she still wants to have power on appointing on the council. And Lenin, even though he's softening, hasn't completely eroded away what he believes in. He's saying like, Mm -hmm. you can have a bicameral legislation, but the Council of People's Commissars should not be holding precedence over any assembly not elected by local Soviets. Mm -hmm. And he storms out. But that's not really the important part of the scene. The important part is Marilyn's great-grandfather coming in to give Anastasia this comb. And we didn't Mm -hmm. really talk about it that much in the beginning scene when they're rolling into town. But you can tell that, you know, it's a little magic between there. Yeah, he's, Emery's attracted. I think um, Marilyn, as the narrator says something like, it's like the stories of the great warriors who fell in love with the maidens, you know, and they saw the beauty and they were just drawn to that or something like that. So Emery is very much stricken with Anastasia. And I think um, she is the only, I guess, the only one of these visitors like Lenin and his people or or even Anastasia's guards. Anastasia is the only one who really connects with Emery. You know, she admires his, um, his uh, gentleness and kindness and she's like thankful for this uh, comb that he gives her. It's carved from whalebone and he describes it as scrimshaw art. And um, yeah, that's when, that's when at this point as I was watching it, I was like, that's the problem with frame stories is like, how do we know that Emery was there to, you know, know what was going on between Marina and Joel and like Kit and Mace, like was Emery there this whole time? But then the episode reminds us right at this point that this isn't all coming from Marilyn's point of view. This is like also we were pulled back out because we see Ed like watching this movie magic happening. You know, he's watching this like uh, story and it, it's cut short because the film reel ends. Like it's no more film left in that reel and Ed is brought back to reality and he starts to load another reel. And yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I think that's a cool way of doing it because then like you have to try to invent some sort of scenario that's like, if you're telling the story from this person's point of view, how do they know like all these little side room conversations that are happening? Right, right. It's just a little too convenient right there, but how else are you going to write it in, man? <laughs> I like a, it. Yeah, I, I like yeah. it. Uh, we get a little bit of a sidebar between the between the Countess and Mikhail. Mm-hmm. Turns out that she's having a little bit of problem breathing, and mm-hmm. he has a stethoscope broken, so he's got to listen in to her heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the main thing that this scene is trying to establish is, is like this uh, chemical reaction between the two. Yeah, he's got to get close because the stethoscope, he doesn't have one, it broke. So he puts his ear on her back and it's a little intimacy you could describe like that. Um, and yeah, that's the main thing we take away from it. The That's the subtext, I guess. The, the text of it is she's got asthma. So he gives her adrenaline is uh, mm-hmm. the prescription he gives her. And then right after this, we got some jazz musicians from New Orleans playing in the Bearded Nail. Um, I wrote down, what the hell is that? So someone must have said that. Like, because uh, Shelly later says, Zowie, let's wag our tails. So everyone's getting excited. Everyone's um, like, the music is making people uh, forget their troubles. And like, the soldiers are sharing cigarettes. And uh, Emery is like, he really badly wants to ask Anastasia to dance. I wrote that in my notes, but I don't know. Does he ever? I don't think he does. He's just thinking about it, maybe. Yeah, I think he's saying like he wishes he could be like Sally and Abe. I think both of them are saying 
Maybe we should mm-hmm. be like Sally and Abe to, mm-hmm. to be more free, which has subtext to be like, you know, as free as like a country. Uh, it's also got a little notes from the chairman. Chairman Lennon upstairs and not partaking of this. I think the chairman says like when a culture declines, it invariably produces decadent art. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> He's saying like, this is a product of a declining culture or something. Mm, yeah, pretty much right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can already see that it even seems like Lennon is like wanting to, I don't know if he's, I can't remember, like this is, could just be my faulty memory, but is he like tapping his foot or something? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it seems like he might want to go downstairs. He is tapping his foot, huh? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So I remembered correctly. Um, and yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool that we got some New Orleans musicians all the way from Louisiana up to Sicily, Alaska. Let's do let's, let's a quick <laughs> back of the napkin math right there. How long would that have taken them? This is, you can't fly. Can't you gotta fly. like, uh. Got to go by, travel by like horse and buggy or something. Uh, what city is Sicily close to? Let's say Talkeetna because uh, there, there's actually a very interesting like thread online somewhere. I've, I'll have to find it again, but someone took context clues from every episode or whenever they mention it in the show and tried to pinpoint where Sicily, Alaska would be. And there's not like one very specific place. It's like probably a couple different bubbles where it could be. But I've always heard Talkeetna is like a reference for what the creators wanted Sicily to be like. Mm. All right. Well, we got that in there. Plug that into the old calculator. It's 4,364 miles from New Orleans to Talkeetna, which averages to 1,419 hours. Let me see. How how often would you say you travel in a day back then? Like on a horse? You mean how far do you think you travel? Yeah, well, like how many? Let's give it eight hours. Eight hours? You think you eight travel hours. About eight That's hours? like okay. the D&D rules <laughs> All right, for overland see. travel. That means it would take you, give or take, 177 days. <laughs> So one one third. So they're definitely not. They're living on the road and they're just traveling. Like the last time they've been to New Orleans was probably like two years ago or something. Yeah. (laughs) Like they've they've been. uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say they travel far and wide to get to you know get to Sicily. You know, I've just started reading um, this Wheels on Fire. It's like a biography that Levon Helm wrote. Um, Levon Helm's from the band. Um, the band called the band is, is the name. And he talks about in his early career, you know, he's from like Mississippi and they were playing like rockabilly and stuff like that. But in Canada, they were like really hankering for that type of music. So like they could spend like a summer up there doing like residencies and like playing to some, you know, maybe not, maybe not every night, but you know, they, they'd be booked, you know, frequently. So they would just travel up to Canada for like, the summer, maybe more for half a year and then travel back down. So yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's the life of a jazz musician perhaps back in the, back in these times. So, mm. you know, <laughs> nice. Well, travel, get, make it all the way to Alaska. Yeah. Give a spread a little joy in Sicily, Alaska right here. But that brings us to our next scene. The next scene is going to be Marina coming to see Mikhail. She wants to pay him for the adrenaline and he says nope i'm paid by the people's polyclinic i'm well provided for and he shows her like his like mobile lab that he brings with him because he's 
I mean, not him alone, many scientists, but he they, they want to find a cure for tuberculosis. So he brings his um his 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 microscopes and whatever test tubes and things. And um yeah, I mean, well, I I don't I'm trying to think of like what the deeper meaning is behind the scene, but I can tell you on the surface they do get close and they look at some things under a microscope and they get really close to each other and then they start kissing. So that's kind of like a spark for them. Yeah, it's kind of like the advent of science and technology, just mm-hmm. coming a little bit closer. He's trying to solve tuberculosis and everything. But yeah, you're right. The scene just ends with them kissing. But that's not really like the main part of the plot line. The main part of the plot line is between Anastasia and Lenin and the yeah. conversations that are having and how to how to get this negotiation right here. So again, we cut to them on a bright new day and they're making a little headway in the conversation because they're saying that they're going to release some political prisoners. They're given, mm-hmm. given a little more leeway toward her. And of course, the chairman is not, not happy. <laughs> of course, the chairman is arguing back. Yeah. But like we said, he's slowly becoming more accommodating because he's eating the food. Mm-hmm. Eating the food, drinking uh, the tea or whatever it is. And he's like... Um, he seems more comfortable, less rigid, you know, mm-hmm. in these meetings. Whereas you were mentioning the chairman is like totally like, what are you talking about? We can't do this. Like you're you're throwing it all away. You're squandering it. But um, they agree on, you know, he stands up. He's like, hmm, like smacking his lips. He's like, so this is uh, very historic. What what do you think we should call this? And they're like, uh, the peace talks. He's like, no, 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 no. We shall call it the Treaty of Sicily. I noticed at this point, it's like, okay, the Treaty of Sicily is not a real thing in history, so I don't think they ever really sign it at this point. <laughs> like, <laughs> this will never happen. But because they're they're announcing it, they're going to draw up the papers or something, and they're going to come back uh, to sign it, I guess, tomorrow, I think. In the, I'm kind of lost in the chronology of my notes, but I think it's like the next day we will sign this treaty. And Anastasia then comes to meet, comes to visit with Emery, to thank him for the the comb that she adores. And I think also just kind of being like, you know, this might be our last time hanging out because I've got to sign this treaty, head back. I think she eventually asks him to go kite flying the next morning. But a couple other notes I have in this scene is Emery is trying to read Das Kapital. He's like, it's rather hard to follow. And Anastasia also talks about she's more accustomed to like loving the land and nature. And she hates like the frilly ruling class, nobility lifestyle. She's like, she's down to earth, you know, mm-hmm. she gets it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why she wants the, um, that that's like the thing that decided the whole treaty of Sicily was what position she could get. And she mm. wanted, a, a minister of mining and forestry. Right. Yeah, I, was that. Nice. I like how the guy, like they were already talking about it. They were saying like, she can't be in control of like health or anything like that. Like big things. And then she says something that's like completely left field from that. She goes mining and forestry. And he still freaks out. He's like, what? I cannot believe you want mining and forestry. I was like, what? <laughs> why does that even matter to you, man? Like, what do you like? I don't even understand. Like, what did you want her to have then? <laughs> yeah. What would the... What's the throwaway ministry that no one cares about? I don't know. <laughs> um, that's funny. That's good. That's cool though. Yeah. I didn't even make that connection that she, in this scene, she talks about loving the land and nature. So of course that's something where she feels like she would feel connected and want to uh, be a part in, in that at, at, at the very least to be in the uh, ministry of 
mining and forestry. Uh, so yeah, I, I've got this written down. They're going to go kite flying in the morning. One last chance at freedom before she leaves. And, um, that's the end of the story. That's, that's where Marilyn says she doesn't remember what's supposed to happen next. Like, um, the, the, the role of film ends and, um, yeah, for Marilyn, I guess I could see like wanting to know, like you could invent in your mind the conclusion that you want to see from this story. But then if you look in the history books, you realize, okay, that's not, that's not what happened. So I can understand Marilyn being like, what actually did happen? Because she doesn't remember it. Next scene, we get Ed sleeping, but uh, he's woken up because that editing machine like kicks back on, like no one's there turning the switch. It just like turns on and it wakes Ed up and he goes over to it and he sees the scene that they're, they're um, it's Emery and Anastasia and they're flying their kites together. So it did happen, or at least in this uh, magic of film, it is happening. Like we're creating the ending like John Cassavetes would. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I thought that was a really cool idea. Well, like the film just comes to life. Mm-hmm. So Ed's able to finish out the story right there. So yeah, we cut right back into the story within the story. We get them flying kites right there. And she's saying that she got it as a gift from China, from the Dowager, I believe is what she says right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, there's two different things that are happening here because they're having fun with the kite and they got to get back to the meeting. So they're going to ride their bikes to get back to town. And on the other side, you got Kit and Mace trying to get this vehicle running, trying to Christian it to life. And Kit yeah. gets onto it, and he starts driving. And I, I got to be honest, man. I thought this scene was going to end with Anastasia killed by the vehicle. I was <laughs> Me like, too. Like, they set it up hard because we get, like, we got lots of intercutting with Kit uh, on the It on looks the like a lawnmower, vehicle. man. It's just a lawnmower, basically, a, a riding lawnmower. But he's moving from left to right. And then we get shots of Emery and Anastasia on bikes and they're moving from right to left. So we're constantly undercutting these motions, knowing, you know, that's just film language, mm-hmm. like back to was like DW Griffith or whatever. I don't remember the it's like the oldest films where we use like directional cinematography. So we understand that they're the film is suggesting that there's gonna be a collision. Yeah, I I I, I thought <laughs> I thought she was going to die, but then I was like, how are they going to, well, I mean, Sicily ends with uh, Sicily dying, you know, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. If you're here, should, you've probably seen that episode. Um, that would have banned cars immediately. <laughs> the first guy to do an off-road car kills an individual. You're like, yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it, it just, it just turns out that Kit crashes the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like they're going to collide, but Kit crashes and Anastasia is like spun out and she can't stop, uh, because they're going down like a very steep incline on the bike. And, you know, I guess those bikes don't, you can't like, it's not the kind where you can like backpedal or there's no brakes on the handlebar. So Emery does this really sick trick where he like, he, he like spins the bike fast to like cut the direction so that he stops hops off the bike and like, I think he does like a, uh, sort of like, not like a tackle, but like in midair, like he scoops her off the bike mm-hmm. before she could fall. And, uh, I think she, you know, he takes her weight and falls down hurting his own leg. Um, but we know that, you know, they're They're already late for this meeting. So they got to get back to this 
this uh, negotiations table. But yeah, at this point, it's like, okay, his leg is hurt. Marilyn's leg's hurt. Maybe there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. That's a really good one. <laughs> that is true. His leg's hurt. That's what's delaying him to the meeting that all of them are waiting for. They're getting more and more impatient at what's happening right here. But before we even can get there, they squeezed in one last scene between Kit and Mace. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it already. How Kit was saying that the, yeah. the harmony of the world is out of balance. Nothing's lining up with these metal monstrosities that are <laughs> cruising through it. So... He goes back to baptizing, goes back to yep. proselytizing to good people. And uh, yeah, we talked about that that scene already. Uh, he, he decides to give up on the car thing and, you know, predicts global warming. Um, <laughs> Which is like, hang on, let's, when did Inconvenient Truth come out? Which was really beaten Al Gore by a good number of years because Inconvenient Truth didn't come out till 2006. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, well, we obviously like knew about it before then, but you know, it was, uh, like even, um, he's definitely beaten Mike Monroe to the, to the, uh, environmentalism. Yeah. Like, by like a hundred years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I mean, but yeah, what's okay. Sorry. I, I don't want to harp on it too much. It's like, I definitely could see, um, a person like Kit uh, he says the problem's not the, in the mechanics, it's in the concept. And he, he sees that n- in a way, in his perspective, nature herself is cringing at the idea of this noise and this smoke. So I could see how like you might come to the conclusion like, okay, maybe this is actually hurting nature in some way. But yeah, I think he, uh, <laughs> it's suggestive too much to, um, to green because Mace is like, what you t- you think that the world is like a greenhouse or something? And he's like laughing, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that cuts back to Anastasia trying to get back to the meeting. And like you said before, the leg for Emery is being held up by like this makeshift stint. Yeah. He's got like the he's got like cloth or some sort of like uh sticks to to kind of keep it straight. And uh they roll in there, but no one's there except Marina is there. So the countess is there and the, the negotiations are off, turns out. So Anastasia just announces, okay, we, we messed up. We lost our chance. Let's go to Paris. Anastasia thinks that the new government that Lenin's got, it's going to fall and the people are still going to want me to return. So, you know, there's still a future for us uh, in the motherland, but we got to lay low in Paris, I think. Yeah, I mean, at that point, we cut to Lenin and his bunch, you know, with Mikhail Borisovich. Uh, they're all getting ready to leave Sicily on, on you know, in their way. And uh, I was going to say, Joel, Mikhail announces that he's not going back to Russia. He's, he's seen the light. And I sort of read some of this earlier, but I've got the quote here. As a scientist, I'm not so sure anymore that life can be reduced to class struggle to dialectical materialism, or any set of formulas. Life is spontaneous and it is unpredictable. It is magical. I think that we have struggled so hard with the tangible that we have forgotten the intangible. I can only say I've become more aware of my ignorance. And Lenin says, I'm afraid I can't afford to be aware of mine. I'm like, what? Um, Sure. I mean, I, I definitely think Mikhail, it makes sense for Mikhail to maybe have some of these ideas, but also like he's trying to find a cure for tuberculosis. So like, you don't just accept that tuberculosis is unpredictable. Like, I believe that Mikhail would be like, no, I mean, science is there 
for us to like control these problems as well. We can't just accept, sorry. I mean, I think he can have both views. It's just, I don't know. It was, um, I think this is also the message of the episode. So I'm, uh, submitting myself to that. I'm like, okay, I want to see this episode through this, this through line here that we've got. But yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, not gonna say I didn't have like problems with how simply laid out it is, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. We get this, uh, Pretty universal lesson right there. I feel like this <laughs> lesson is like never wrong, which is why yeah. it's kind of a cop out. It's like the lesson of like, whoa, slow your roll, man. Appreciate life. It's like, <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> all right. right. You're right. <laughs> That's true. Heard that. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to diminish the episode because mm-hmm. um, it's not like inherently simple to understand themes or below more complex ones. It's no, not what no, I'm trying no, to no. say at all. No. I just think that like the mechanism, the execution of it all is the thing that's lacking on this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's how almost his, his plot line is almost finished. Mm-hmm. Okay, else. But we finish up Anastasia's next because that's she's right. going to depart for town. She's getting in that automobile, which is, it seems to be a common thing. I mean, I, I know that's how they got here was mm-hmm. the automobiles, but that's how they're leaving as well. She's getting to her automobile and she's saying goodbye to Emery. She apologizes for the leg. She says that she's not going to forget him. Yeah. And, um, honestly, that's all I have in my notes for that scene. She calls him Toniak, mm-hmm. uh, where I think Marilyn earlier says to Uniak. So, you know, I mean, it's a funny name. But that's the word that means back, like carrying you all on on the on their back. And Emery carried Anastasia, you know, to the um or actually did he just like saved her and then she was kind of carrying it. Whatever. They ran together. I'm trying to draw some sort of conclusion here, but he's got a cool name there. Um so Ed tells this story to Marilyn now. He's got the full picture. And um she says, Do you think my leg will stop hurting now that I know the story? Ed says, Well, I don't know. Usually in cases like this, there's a lesson to be learned. In the story, Marilyn says, social systems fail, machines fail. There's something people keep forgetting. And yeah, I mean, like, I'm not gonna, I mean, I, I kind of just want to go back to what you're saying. It's like, it's it's not that the we're trying to harsh on like a simple message, but it is the idea of like how how the message is delivered. Because uh, an episode of TV, a movie, isn't just like what it's trying to say to you. If it was, then you could read that or you could read an essay or like someone could have an argument with you and try to convince you. But a movie is like experiencing things, feeling things and translating um, these feelings and expressing them in uh, visual and other ways, you know? Uh, I don't know. It's it's it's, a lot of things. (laughs) It's the story. Like that's the main thing that the film is trying to communicate to you. And you know it right there. Like if I wanted to learn... That like, I need to go back to my roots. I could just hear that. I need to go back to my roots. And that'd be it. That, you're done. Yeah. That, that's, that's the moral of the thing. Is yeah. just go back to your roots. But the way that you take that theme is that you apply it to the story, which contains a multitude of things. It contains plot, character. And it, it expresses something more than words can express. That's a key, I think. Right. It expresses ideas more than words can in certain situations. Right. And so, like, when this episode tries to take this moral and apply it to the outside world, it feels unearned because it feels like I could have just read this on a bumper sticker or a fortune cookie, something like that. And I think that's why it leaves such a strange taste in my mouth because I don't feel like this was the best way 
to execute it. Now, again, this episode aired in 1994. The Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991. There is a possibility that it had a stronger cultural impact at the time of airing. For sure. Like yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah, there was way more on their minds right then. So when, when Marilyn and Ed go to the brick and Marilyn says, you know, I found the solution. I'm just going to quit my night job because yeah. I don't need the Laserdisc player. It's an elegant solution to do it, but I don't know. I think it, I was just, I was just thinking about this. I think it's cool because like she already had that solution. Joel told her to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where like, you know, Marilyn knew the answer, but to really understand it, like we had to go through the, like we had to hear the story and like really think about like, you know, it's kind of like you're saying, it's like the, <laughs> a good, a good movie or something is not just telling you the answer. It's, expressing these feelings. And so, uh, Marilyn saw a good movie through Ed, you know, and so she, she's able to come to that conclusion, even though it was spelled out to her by Joel, she got to it in her own way. And, and I think that's even more powerful for her to be like, yeah, I realize I didn't need that laser disc player, but that's not, that's not the end of the story, right? There's like still, Ed has like a little more story left, right? They talk about the ending for Makayo. Yeah. Turns out, he might have made the wrong decision because everyone else skipped town, including the <laughs> Countess. But then, you know, like a good movie, you got to get that Hollywood ending. Yeah. He walks through town and she's still there and they embrace. That's not even the end of the, that's not even the end of the episode. The end of the episode though, it's like this scrawl. <laughs> Hold on. I took a <laughs> screenshot of it. Let me find it. It's like the first time they've ever had a scrawl. Yeah. There's, it's a scroll. This text is actually scrolling. And what it says is this. After his return from Alaska, Lenin instituted the new economic policy, which allowed for limited private enterprise. The policy revived the Soviet economy, but was scorned by hardline party members. After Lenin's death, Stalin abolished Lenin's reforms and returned the Soviet Union to quote-unquote pure socialism. All right. Little historical references here. In the ending, we kind of see, I always think about those movies where it's like, this is completely different actually, but it's like when they have, like they show the characters and it's like, it's a freeze frame on the character and it's like 10 years later he did this and it's like 10 years later he was like dead in a ditch. <laughs> it's like comedy, like, like Adam Sandler movies or something or I don't mm -hmm. know, like those, I think Animal House has that ending. Yeah, Animal House um, has that. Yeah, I do want to say about that final scene with Joel and Maggie, with uh, Mikhail and Marina. Mm -hmm. uh, we can kind of see it on the Blu-rays that we're watching, um, Charles, when like the quality kind of gets lesser than, and like, I think it's because in, in this last scene, I think it looks beautiful, but it's not like in full 1080 quality. And I think I've talked about this before. I think it has to do with, um, when they did special effects processing on Northern Exposure, like the, the show is shot on film. But when they had to do their special effects or any sort of special processing to the film, they probably used some sort of video format as like an intermediary. And in the end, like even though they shot this on film, like this is all going to be video, you know, broadcast over television. So what I'm getting at is like any pieces of film, any sequences or scenes that were processed through visual effects or some special coloring like this scene um, would have been, would not exist on film. It would only exist as video. So when we're watching it back in 1080, we get like this restored 
film, like, you know, we see that, but then anything that's visual effects, we only see in like the lower quality. So this last scene, while it does seem a little lower quality than 1080, I think it has a really cool sort of like sepia tone effect. Mm -hmm. Like the whole episode is kind of, has like some soft, seems like a lot of natural light that I don't think it's all natural light in this episode, but it seems like it probably is mostly... It might all be natural light. Like it it looks very cinematic, but this last um, scene has like a very, I don't know, like old timey feel, very pretty. And I think the makeup on Janine Turner looks great. Rob Morrow looks great. And we get that, as you said, that beautiful Hollywood ending. Ed is narrating the Cassavetes quote. Um, He says, you know, we're we're all, we're kind of all like John Cassavetes in that way. We just don't know the end until we get there. And it turns out, yeah, Mikael didn't expect to find Marina, but they they she stayed back too, and they lived in Sicily forever, I guess. I don't know what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how the episode ends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we invite on a guest. And for this season, we've been inviting on fans of Northern Exposure to talk about season six, to talk about the episodes that we're watching. But uh, for this episode, we have a very special guest. We put out a call on Twitter, on like social media, asking for fans of the show if they'd like to be guests on the podcast. And Chris reached out to us uh, saying that, hey, I, I was actually in the episode Zarya. I was this character. And uh, so, so we have an actor from the show, Chris Shanahan, uh, and uh, I guess a featured extra from this episode joining us on a Zoom call right now. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us. Uh, why, why don't you start off and just say a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to Northern Exposure or, or, or even before that. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Well, listen, yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, yeah, well, because Northern Exposure really was my, my claim to fame when it comes to uh, being on a network uh, t- a television show. Mm-hmm. So I was living in Seattle. I had moved uh, um, um, out from Chicago. I, I studied acting and got my BFA at uh, Boston University School for the Arts mm. and slowly made my way out to Seattle, which was a very kind of hot theater town at the time and uh, was doing, you know, was trying to make my way as a young, younger actor. And mm. uh, <laughs> I would go out. I, it was a, I had a, an agent at the time. Really what they, they needed for the show, which they cast it in Seattle and shot near Seattle and did on a soundstage across the lake, um, they needed, you know, bearded men is really what they needed. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was told to grow a beard because really normally on television and film, you know, be- clean shaven was the thing. Beards were not in at the time. Okay. <laughs> but Northern Exposure came along and everyone was growing a beard. So, you know, any local actor who had a beard was going to get some auditions out there. That's and cool. I did, I got some auditions. You know, I went, I probably went out two or three times to audition for various small parts. Mm-hmm. I think one of them grew into, you know, a regular role. I think I may have read for the, uh, the one of the cooks at the, at the kitchen at the brick. Okay. Um, oh. And nice. he became sort of a recurring role. He would be around and stuff. Right. And then some of them were just sort of smaller roles with, but you know, a featured extra, I guess, was is better than being an extra. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 
yeah, so I finally got that that, that gig, and uh, you know, it, it was it was a lot of fun, certainly to to work in the. It was my first, yeah, the first TV show. I'd done a lot of theater mm-hmm. uh, after I left BU and in Chicago, and I was doing theater in Seattle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the goal was certainly to you know to get on TV and do movies and and, and whatnot. So it was exciting. Yeah, exciting at that time. Very nice. Had you seen Northern Exposure before? I, I guess it was kind of a popular show. Yes, yes. Oh, sure. My wife at the time and I, and a lot of people, people would watch it to see their friends. You know, we knew other area actors who would be on the show. And we'd uh-huh. go, oh, okay. look, there's so-and-so. <laughs> but, you know, I was remembering some of this stuff and I had done a, was doing a little research. And, you know, some people said that, you know, Northern Exposure was one of the best television series of all time. And I was, yeah. I I guess I hadn't thought of it as that. But then when I was doing some rewatching and stuff, um, yeah, people really loved it at the time. It was so quirky and certainly mm-hmm. living in Seattle, people, you know, identified to sort of being on the edge <laughs> of the country. Yeah. And the writing and the acting was very good. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very good show. It's startling how we were kind of talking about this right before we hit record, but startling how popular it was with critics and just the general audience uh, back in the 90s. And then today, you know, I don't think anyone's heard of this show. It's partly because I guess you we were talking about this, like you can basically only watch it on DVD. It's pretty hard to come by. It's kind of lost in a way. <laughs> I, I I can't believe that would continue with the amount the you yeah. know the number of streaming platforms and the mm-hmm. um, you know the the need for content. Um, mm-hmm. And again, maybe yeah, you know, sure, a podcast like this, information like this, uh, may bring it back to who well, knows. We hope. Maybe they'll even do yeah. a reboot. You know, they're yeah, doing, yeah. rebooting a lot of these things. Yeah, there, there, <laughs> there was some talks at some point. It's not, it's not a, it's not out of the question. But uh, so I forgot to mention. So Chris, your role in this episode, Zaria, is the character of Yuri, who is like Janine Turner's servant. I, you know, I, I think in one scene. Do you, do you remember? Were you just in one scene? Did they shoot more that was cut, or what was your experience on set? So, well, I was looking at it the other day. The one. First, the first thing that reminded me and struck me, of course, is that it's this flashback period piece. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that was really fun. Uh, you know, it was fun. I got my fancy, you know, 19, whatever the year is. What is, I'm not sure the year Zarya like takes the, place. Is it like the 1917? Yeah, 1910s mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, we might have to look at this and re-edit it because <laughs> I forget the year. Yeah. The year was 1921. But so, and the, and the antique cars, the first scene I get to be, I say, oh, there I am, I'm riding in on the antique car. And, you know, I've got <laughs> oh, the, whole, nice. the antique luggage That's and my true. little bowler hat on. And, and you know, it, so in that sense, with all of the costumes and the flashback and the sort of the period piece of it, it was really kind of a hoot in that way. It was really fun to see people all dressed up like that. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they did a lot of different flashbacks and strange episodes in Northern right. Exposure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that was like their bread and butter right there. <laughs> I don't know, and maybe you guys know better about how this particular episode was received, because it mm-hmm. was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a history lesson, and mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, a flashback and the Maryland piece and the family, the, um, the family piece with Ed's grandfather and stuff. So it was kind of complicated. I don't know if the fans, if, how this rates in fandom. Yeah, it will, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And the fandom, I would be curious to know, and I'm sure we'll know once we do release this episode, we'll kind of take the temperature. At the time that it aired, it was um, not the lowest, but one of the lower viewings in that season. This is season six, uh, the last season, so the, the ratings were starting to drop. Um, but I mean, compared to today, Charles, we were talking about this. It, so it had 15.8 million which compared to today is like astronomical yeah, numbers, that's like a, great. Yeah, that's, that's really a, good. a bananas number right now. <laughs> <laughs> to, to even score on the 15 is like, oh man, that's just, it's like, where, where do we, uh, yeah. where do we, when do we uh, greenlight the movie? <laughs> yeah. And something that we had found in our research, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I believe it to be true, but um, it seemed that this episode, Chris, this episode was originally slated to be like the season five finale. And then they were shooting it. I guess they were still editing it. And so they released it later in season six. That is a very good point. I remember distinctly Mm. week after week wondering when and if the episode would even air because there was a lot of talk. And we can talk about it a little later. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of tension on the set. And Mm. there was some question whether even this season – you know, if there would be a season six, there was always sort of a lot of, you know, is Northern Exposure going to continue? Are actors still going to be able to work? Right. You know? um, and I remember waiting for a long time. I remember telling my mother, my mother would say, when is your show going to be on? And I would say, well, <laughs> it's, it's going to be on in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks. But it, it that's right. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I think that's one of the most frightening things about being an actor. I'm not an actor myself, but I, I've definitely heard lots of stories where they say that like, oh, I've been final. I, I got cast in this movie. I got the role and they show up on set. They know their lines. They're professional. They're, they're killing it. They're crushing it. And then like a year later, someone in the editing department, the director, the assistant director, somebody was like, ah, we got to cut some fat out of this, uh, out of this film. Let's just cut this whole scene out. They and then the whole you scene. show up to the, yeah, you show up to the movie theater and you're like, you're so waiting for it. And then you're just, you, you just realize like it dawns on you. They like your cut, your part got cut. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the saddest things. And it's, it's really to no one's fault to some to some degree because there's an understanding. There's like maybe there really was too much. Like yep. maybe it's yes. like not. I think that's just one of the biggest disappointments of being an actor, right there. And I, I bet you were feeling that when you were well, waiting for Zari to air. Even recently, I recently as last I don't know. I guess it was last year. I've I've done some other background work. I've done some other acting of different sorts and everything. But I I have done some other background work fairly recently but i got cast in the background job it was just up the street i was going to do some skating uh, in a paul giamatti movie which was being shot here at deerfield academy and um yeah they gave me the date i had taken the covid tests and i had gone down for the fitting and then the day of the shoot two days before something they got an email that said no we have enough people here we don't need any more skaters Thanks for yeah. that. So <laughs> you never booked. know. Yeah. I guess you never know. No. Um, and the other thing, you know, the other thing that was great for a young actor just being like on the set of a, a hit TV show was mm-hmm. that 
there were some very, very, very good actors in this mm. particular episode. The guest stars were were tremendous. And I had forgotten, but particularly the dude who played Lennon, uh, mm -hmm. Christopher Neen. He was excellent. Yeah. Excellent, I thought. And then uh, Michael DeVars, DeBaris, who's also, I mean, he's gone on to many other things, but did a lot of acting as well. He has a show. He's a DJ on uh, XM, the um, oh. serious underground radio. He was a rocker. He Again, a very super talented guy. He, I think, and also he was in a number of rock bands himself, maybe even like yeah. with Power Station with Robert Palmer. I forget. I didn't even recognize this. That's um, so this Charles in the episode, it's like uh, Lennon's like commissioner or something like Lennon's. Yeah. He's like a secret police, the police guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. He's like trying to get Lennon to be more strict and Lennon is like right. being more relaxed. This, mm -hmm. this is the uh, actor. That's oh, the character. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> and the other guy was um, Ian Abercrombie. Mm -hmm. who went on to Seinfeld. He was uh, Elaine's boss on Seinfeld. Uh, oh a, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> he's a tremendous, tremendous character yeah, yeah. actor. I mean, I do recognize Ian Abercrombie has the, the career I wish I had. You know, I mean, he <laughs> is, he's really just solid. Yeah, as soon as we saw, because you see him kind of early in the episode, if I remember correctly, and I'm just like, oh yes. yeah, this guy, character actor, yeah. very familiar yeah. face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just, they were, I mean, they were tremendously professional on stage. I mean, on, mm -hmm. on set. And mm -hmm. um, uh, I remember uh, Michael DeBarris would come, he would hang out, you know, we would be at craft services having lunch or something. And he would come and hang out and, you know, he shoot stories of the, you know, the big time and, and, mm -hmm. and it, but in a very nice way, not in a, you know, not in a, yeah. um, not in an I'm better than you. Way. Right. He was just <laughs> hanging out, hanging out, having a good time. That's cool. And I was oh. impressed. Yeah, I was impressed by that. And, and by the guy who played Lennon in the scenes that I was on set with him. He was just, he was extremely intense. And I think he looks, I mean, to me, yeah. he looked like Lennon. I mean, I very believe yeah, he's got a good look. He looks for the it. part. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask Chris. So while you were on set over there, uh, can you tell us how it was um, just life over there do you have any stories anything that was like you cannot believe has never been unearthed <laughs> well <laughs> the secrets from watching twitter recently mm -hmm. obviously janine and rob are friends now and they're mm -hmm. getting along now mm -hmm. at the time of the filming of certainly of this episode but i think a lot of episodes from my understanding there, there was a lot of tension on the set Ooh. Wow. <laughs> I had the, un, I mean, it, you know, I had this great scene. My little scene comes early, but it's a great little scene of Miss, just me and Janine and mm -hmm. Rob in, in her little um, cabin there, quarters. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so a couple of funny things. Um, <laughs> one thing that I, I will remember and I thought was very funny um, and, is the script calls. You can hear uh, he knocks on the door the doctor who's coming to visit and mm. I, the manservant go over and open the door and welcome him in. Um, I remember Rob taking me aside before the shooting started. He said, now he talks very low. He was a low talker in the show and in real life he was, and he said, now listen, don't open the door before I knock. 
And I was like, well, <laughs> it, it, that's what it says in the script. And why would I open that? I didn't say this to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very deferential to Mm-hmm. I didn't want to get kicked off the set or anything. Right, right. I said, no, no. I said, okay. I said, you knock, and then I open the door. But for some reason, he was very, that was very important to him that I not just come over and fling open the door or something. That you know, needed to be a moment. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back to Charles when we talked to director Michael Lang, who who shot mm-hmm. a few episodes of Northern Exposure, and he was saying how, I think it was the first episode he did, he was like, Rob can be a little testy sometimes. Like he was testing me to see if I was like actually a good director. And he was like, you know, something to do with like where my mark, where Rob's mark was. He's like, did you move my mark? Like what is, you know, you're supposed to tell me if you move my mark or so, you know, but he wasn't (laughs) trying to be an ass or anything, but he was like trying to like, that's his way of maybe poking fun and also testing the director to be like, come on. But I get. I don't know. I, I can. I can see that. That's funny. The story that you just told. And, and I watched when I watched the letter last night. I mean, part okay. of his character is he's a jerk. I mean, yeah. part of yeah. him is a jerk. Uh, he's getting into the, it. But the other thing about the mm-hmm. tension in, in that scene and between the the actor and the actress, um, I believe. Not, I don't believe. I remember. I got overtime because I had to sit and wait for them to come on to the set for mm. a very long time. It was wow. essentially, I don't know, it's a three minute scene. I don't, right, yeah. I guess we changed, they changed the angle one time. So, but it's mm-hmm. a very, it's a pretty sh- short scene, my, my part of it. Mm-hmm. But as I recall, he was very upset with her because she didn't know her lines. Mm. And he was not going to come out of his trailer or his room or wherever Dang, until she knew the, her lines. The juicy. And, then, and she God. was upset. In this episode, yeah. she wears all of these ridiculous hats. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, the style, they're just, yeah. she did not care for them. And <laughs> she said, I'm not going to wear this hat or we have to. So she would not come on to the set because she was upset about costuming and, and hats. But I mean, it dragged on so long that someone came over and said that, you know, you'll get overtime for this because I just had to oh sit around and wait and wait until they were ready to come onto the set. That's the juicy oh gossip. What's up, yeah, Charles? I <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I don't, I'm not, I have tremendous right. respect for them mm-hmm. as people, as actors. There just was at that time, like on many, yeah. many shows, many exactly. shows, people Who don't knows? get along. Yeah. Who knows? And also this is six seasons in and we've, Charles and I have kind of started talking about this. It's like, we, I guess we should try to f- do a little more research and figure out, but it's like, did they know at this point that the show is getting canceled at a certain point? I'm sure they do know though. I don't know. Maybe you could ask some actors on the show and they would say, I didn't even know it was going to get canceled. It just happened, yeah. you know? So, yeah. but I don't know, you know, that's, that's another thing too. It's like, they've been doing this for six six seasons and also like do they feel like with uh now they've got a new executive producer david chase do they feel like they're just getting you know the the garbage episodes now i don't know and yeah and one of them yeah. i mean they left sort of separately or came back i mean joel yeah left, joel, joel leaves then, the show yeah. mm-hmm. so and then maggie some happened with maggie i was looking 
Hi, I had to punch in for a spoiler warning here. Big spoilers ahead for season six of Northern Exposure. If you haven't seen it and want to avoid spoilers, skip ahead to one hour, 32 minutes and seven seconds. I forgot she ended up with Chris, it said. Yeah. Well, thankfully, <laughs> uh, I was trying. This is the this is the spoiler spoiler that Charles guessed. He guessed oh, that really? somehow really? Ac- was, accidentally yeah, guessed it. He yeah. accidentally guessed that. I got it right on the mark. <laughs> nice, nice. They did kind of set it up in the letter one. In the letter, when, right? In her yeah. when her younger self is saying how odd he is and everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that was one of the things. Yes. I mean, again, that was. I was just uh, trying to do, you know, my best and everything. Um, one of the other things I remember is that. I mean, it's kind of a little intense scene and they do take some moments to me. There's some lines like he says, well, maybe Yuri would like to join us. Mm-hmm. And then she says, well, I, I he maybe he would, but I'm not sure he would feel comfortable. Yeah. And I remember when the uh, the director, Jim Charleston, was breaking, breaking it down and moving on. He said, you know, he took, looked at me, he said, I can't remember if he said, we really should give you a, a line or he, or he said, we really should give you a close-up. But he mm-hmm. said, but we don't have time for it. We're moving on. And I was like, oh, man. Come on. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation for that character, Yuri, because they're kind of, both Janine and Rob are kind of, you know, talking to him, through him, using him as like a, a little, uh, what's the word? Like uh, a conduit? A conduit. Thank you. That's exactly the word. Uh, but... But unfortunately, I guess for you, Chris, you, you don't have a, you can't say a line. You just like, you have to act it out, I guess, as best as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I probably acted when I looked at it the other day, mm-hmm. it's probably overacted my, my <laughs> sort of bows and my, I do take a take when he says, you're, maybe Yuri would like to join us. And I look at her like, really? Yes. That's, yeah. that's, but she was like, mm, no. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm. I'll get out of here now. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, some, yeah, a line, and then I would have gotten a credit, you know, in the, yeah. in, in yeah. the that's your business. Yeah. I, I was going to say, like, I think that's, it puts you in such, such a tough position because in that scene, it's just the three of y'all. It's not like this is like, oh, you're in the brick and there's like a whole lot of other people here and like everyone's getting overtime. It's, it's just you. Yeah. It's just like you're waiting and like you're in between two opposing forces <laughs> that rightfully are probably having a very bad day. And like, yes. there's just like, this doesn't probably, you would not describe them as these types of individuals. I'm sure they're just having um, a very nasty, particular uh, happenstance in their mind. And so you're just in between there and you're just sitting there probably twiddling your thumbs. And I think that's so, that's so unfortunate. I'm so sorry to happen. Well, and it was good, but I also felt like they did need, they needed a feature extra. I had to be able to act a little bit. I mean, I had mm-hmm. to be able to yeah. respond either non-verbally to what was going on or, I, I mean, I, I like to think they hired me because, for, you know, for some reason, because I could mm-hmm. do whatever it was that needed to be done in that little space of a, of a scene yeah. so that was good <laughs> the other um this is a very i think funny little story regarding <laughs> rob morrow rob might not think it's so funny but i i would i would think now he might look back on it he might look back on it with fondness given his you know his age and maturity uh-huh. when i got the job uh 
you know, I told my family and whatnot, and I have an older brother, a couple years older than, than I am. And he said, oh, that's, you know, Northern Exposure, Rob Morrow. And he said, Rob Morrow, he said, call Rob Morrow the ice cream man. And I said, <laughs> what? I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was, so it turns out that in New York City, and this must have been after Rob graduated I don't know where he graduated from acting school, but I'm assuming probably NYU or, or mm-hmm. somewhere in New York, or maybe after he left. You know, I could probably tell you. Let's see. Oh, no, no. Well, it says he uh, he he dropped out of high school in his senior year to begin acting. Okay, so he was good. starting so he to was get roles, the, I guess. Yeah, so he was in the city trying to become an actor, and he was working in a restaurant, and the restaurant was the same restaurant my brother was working in and it was a a a restaurant in fact it was a very kind of popular restaurant up on lexington on the upper west side probably in the 80s something like that it was a restaurant called popover popover very famous all sorts of people used to come in andy rooney used to come in and so he was but rob was the delivery person at the restaurant. <laughs> and uh, my brother said, <laughs> this is regarding the ice cream man, my brother said that when Rob wasn't out on deliveries, you know, Rob used to like to, you know, sit in the kitchen and, and have some ice cream. <laughs> he, he used to have a lot of ice cream and he developed a reputation, I guess, amongst the staff and the kitchen people as the ice cream man. That was his sort of nickname. They go, oh, yes. yo, he's the ice cream man, yo. Ice cream man, how's it going? <laughs> so my brother suggested that maybe I should call Rob the ice cream man. <laughs> and I said, I, given when I had sort of reading the room and the tension on the set and being told not to open the door until he knocked, I decided it was not a good idea to call Rob the ice cream man and remind him of his oh, days man. as a delivery, you know, a, a delivery person in New York That's City. hilarious. That would have been so awkward, though, if you were just like, okay, I've got to figure out how to say it. I'm going to yeah. say it. And then Rob is just so mad or something, you know. It's That's hilarious, like, the, the The take would probably be like, you would open the door before he knocked, so it's already strike one, and then you would say the line, like, hello there, Mr. Ice Cream Man, and like, that struck two. It's like, probably would have had, like, uh, aneurysm. I would have been removed from the set. Again, that would not be be tolerated. I did another recent, um, I did another recent background gig last Mm -hmm. year, and they Mm -hmm. made it clear, they said, you know, do not look at or talk to the the principals. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I didn't call him the ice cream man. And again, you know, if, if things had been different and he was jovial, like Michael right, DeBarris right, yeah. was, I might've said, Hey, you know, I, my brother said he worked with you. I mean, it might have come right. up in some conversation, but I, I could see that it, there was not a lot of levity, uh, it, yeah. you know, in that, in that particular, it may have just been that episode. Everyone might've been a lot happier in the next in the next right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always like, uh, even despite if, if like they're in a nasty mood or whatever, it's like, there's always so much happening on a film set. So like people are thinking constantly about a lot of things and probably juggling a lot of things. And I guess even the actors have a lot to prepare and think about. So it's like, it's kind of, uh, would, might be tricky to, to interject something like that, but that is yeah. a funny story. And, and, <laughs> and I mean, you know, you're on a, a hit TV show. Yeah, you know, you. I think it affects 
and should affect the way you think about yourself and your work and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be an unreasonable to ma- demand to want someone else to know their lines. It, you know, if yeah. you go out and do, right. do a scene together. I mean, I, it's not, uh, you know, and as I said, obviously it, that was a certain place in time, a certain ba- day. And, yeah. you know, they're very much uh, friends now and uh, <laughs> they get together and, you know, have coffee and everything. So that's nice. The other, which was harder work, the the scenes. So there was that the nice scene with the, all three of us. And then there are the scenes in the, I guess it's called the church, but the meeting house mm-hmm. right. where they're n- negotiating. And that was hard because it turned out that I also, um, I had to do a lot of uh, serving, waiting. On, on, oh, on the... I didn't realize that. you. So you're handing them the difference. So sometimes in fact, Lennon in one will... Of the, yes, yeah. yes. In one of the scenes, in the, the church scene three, it actually opens up. I'm a hand model. It opens up on me <laughs> pouring the tea. And yeah. I didn't know really that was going to be in the, I don't think it was in the script necessarily, but they right, said, right. oh, we need to serve this stuff. And at one point, Lenin says he's going to have one of the Napoleons and I serve him the Napoleon and he, he eats it. And um, mm-hmm. so that was actually quite a bit of work. And I think if I'm not mistaken, um, I got paid extra because I had to, I was not, just uh, like you're sort of like a it wasn't handler. I was just standing around as a featured extra I actually had to you know be serving yeah. people and bringing tea mm-hmm. and taking things away and I think they gave me again another hundred dollars or two hundred dollars <laughs> yeah. for the scene or something like that you got to like reset every take or like get you know get it get everything going so yeah sort of like a props handler in a way yeah and again you, you, my hands were in the scene and uh-huh. you know, it was <laughs> had to be the same and the continuity and all of that stuff so it got to be I remember we had to spend, you know, quite a bit of time on those small scenes too, because there was a lot of uh, of coming and going and serving and tea and pouring. Mm-hmm. Oh, so so it was a thing like continuity wise, where they're like, okay, make sure you bring him this at this line and don't come in too early. Yeah, okay. There was a yeah, and I think they actually had to figure out the blocking of it, as I remember. They, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't. I think that when we sat there and we, you know the tea and the he had to eat some things. First, they push him away, and then later he has one and everything. So there right. was a lot of blocking that had to be done. Mm-hmm. And I had to do a lot of, I don't think they realized they would have, I mean, essentially it was a waiter gig. I had to do a lot of, it was a waiter yeah. job. Now, actually, just just for my curiosity, do you remember if how many, like it was more than one day of shooting for you, or was it one day? or No, so that was the good thing. There would be one day that the, the, the um, scene with, Rob and Janine was yeah. on the soundstage, okay, which I yeah. guess is, was over in Bellevue across the, the lake okay. there. And then the other scenes, uh, I think it was two days up in Rosalind. Mm-hmm. Um, and they yeah, I mean, they put us up overnight nice. because there was a lot of hmm. costuming and the cars and the, yeah. I think those were two separate days, all of the car stuff and the town stuff. And then the things that meeting house scenes and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think I had a total of three days, as I recall. Oh, that's interesting. I never even thought about this. I'm sure I could figure this out online, but the 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 meeting house, like the church, that location, is that in Rosalind? In Rosalind. Oh, yes. cool. Okay. Yeah. I never thought yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. It's just kind of off a, a back a back sort of a back street, but they use mm-hmm. quite a, a lot of the locations in around 
yeah. around Rosalind so that they didn't have to go too far. So here's here's my silly yeah. question. Uh, so you watched the episode recently kind of um, to just ref- as a refresher. Uh, at the end of the episode, it turns out that Janine Turner's character stays in Rosalind. What, what do you think happens with Yuri? Does he leave? Did you shoot his exit or does he stay with her? <laughs> well, that's, I wondered about that because there's a couple scenes where she's alone and I'm like, well, where is Yuri? I mean, if, I mean did she give her, she must have given him the night off when she and Dr. Fleischman had supper yeah. together. She must have said, Yuri, you know, take the night off. Yeah. But you would, th- I mean, I would think when I saw her in the sort of standing in the rain, that Yuri would be right there with her. I mean, you know, <laughs> either holding the umbrella or, you know, padding yeah. along behind her. But maybe he was so hardcore that he he went back with the with the with gang. Anastasia or whatever. Yeah, with uh, yeah. going to Paris, maybe. Yeah. That's interesting. The other guy who I re- remember when you're watching the episode, the other guy who I remember sticks out and I remember hanging out with was the priest who is always with Anastasia is a giant guy with a big hat and beard, long beard. Yeah. I don't know that we see him too, too much in the episode, but I noticed that early on, right? He's because he's kind of got a really funny yeah. hat. Very, very funny okay. hat. And he shows up a couple of times, but a really striking character. And I remember he was a smoker, so he's always off trying to mm-hmm. get a cigarette in between <laughs> takes and stuff. <laughs> You know what else was just mm-hmm. stuck out to me at the end of the episode, too? Not related to Yuri, unfortunately, but um, the Chris's line about the he was uh, afraid of the global warming of yeah. the, uh, yeah. of the, the, which was, this was what, is it 1994? Four, maybe? I believe. Yeah. yeah, it should be 1994, yeah. October, uh, Halloween, actually. Halloween is when it aired in 1994. Which is, you know, I mean, kind of ahead of the, the, yeah, the, the curve uh, certainly mm-hmm. on giant network TV shows. Even definitely, yeah. yeah there's uh, in, in in an earlier season. There's a a man who lives in like a geodesic dome, like a bubble man who is yeah. uh, very sensitive to all the pollution and stuff. So there is a whole sort of arc with him about not necessarily global warming, but just you know, environmentalism. I think also, yeah. So yeah. greenhouse yeah. gases yeah. and stuff, but, but yeah. 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 It's very, very um, ahead of its time. Have you done yet the, doesn't Adam Arkin come in and do a funny bit? Is it later this season, the Adam Arkin stuff? So he's, he's definitely throughout a lot of the series, but um, what, what is the, the well, scenario? Well, there's a particular one where it's a takeoff on the Monty Python um, crossing the bridge from, um, uh, the Monty Python movie. Was it like the Holy Grail or something? It is the Holy Life Grail. For Brian? The Holy, oh, Grail, Holy Grail. Where he says, how many, how, you know, what's the weight of a European oh, scholar? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think he's the gatekeeper. I think he is. And he, there is a scene like that coming up in the season. Okay. Or maybe it's already, already. No, no, no. I don't think we've seen that yet, but we there's like a, re- that, yeah. it's a reference. So, that was my big one of my big auditions, though. I read ah, for that role, and I oh. I made it to the final, like the final two. What they the call the back or whatever. Deal, and I didn't get it, but that was you know I made mm-hmm. them laugh in the audition, and and it was a good. <laughs> it was just because I had watched the Monty Python thing, and I would I sort you know sort of knew the 
the timing of it. Yeah, stuff. you're familiar. But uh, that was my last claim to fame, really, uh, of my last audition out there that I did not get. Like, <laughs> that, one, <laughs> that one was the one I really, really had hoped yeah, uh, I'd hope to get. Well, to. we're gonna we'll remember you when we see that. We'll definitely uh, <laughs> yeah, shout you yeah. out when we watch. I have it. to, you know, I'm gonna do now that I've done this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a rewatch. I did enjoy watching yeah. the episode last night, and I remembered again. It did take me back, honestly. Uh, uh, Charles, you asked before about you know, or, uh, did we watch it and at the time, and did we enjoy it? But when I watched the letter last night, it really all did sort of come back. Oh yeah. gosh, yeah, very familiar. Yeah, no, just at a good time in my life as well. You know, mm. that was a good a, a good time out there. Yeah, even when it's like an episode that I don't remember, or it's not my not like particularly my favorite episode. Just seeing the characters again is always like, oh, I, I love being here in Sicily. This is great. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The characters you developed a real fondness and connection to them. I think, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I did. In fact, you know, I was googling seeing where some of the actors and the people are now and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, but this can be for, um, as like our wrap up, but I was going to ask if, Mm -hmm. cause you mentioned Chris, that you've uh, been still doing some background and different things, but we can save this for later, but I wanted you to, you know, shout out, uh, anything, if we should look for you in any show or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, my last, my, my last and best, it was again, sort of a featured, um, uh, a featured background performer, a featured extra, in that I had a special skill that I could ice skate. Um, mm. So uh, I'm in the background ice skating scenes in the new movie with um, Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell, Spirited. Oh, okay, nice. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, but it is, you know, people feel two ways about it. Some people really like it, <laughs> some people not so much. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's a good holiday film, but I did. It, it was a real uh, wow. Essentially, I had to skate with the other background skaters for literally ten hours a day, over wow. ten hours a day. Wow! For, for, for three days in a row, and it, it was an endurance test. It yeah. was just I lost six or eight pounds. Mm. I was, you know, by the end of it, uh, you know, you're all bundled up in your winter clothes and you're you know, cut, cut, take, go, take, and you're just all day long um, skating around in a circle. So it was brutal. And I looked back on that Northern Exposure one and it was really a lot of fun. It was a, it was a, (laughs) it was a a hoot. It was really fun, a fun time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that is cool. I mean, like, uh, obviously you had that, the scene where you said you, you had to wait around for a bit and you got overtime, but you had, sounds like you had a lot of downtime. I love that you're talking with, um, the other actors, uh, the linen character. That is actually the good, you know, yeah. well, that's the best thing really about film, theater, TV is the, is the, and this was what was so brutal about COVID mm-hmm. is the teamwork of it, right? The, the collegiality, the um, everyone's working together for mm-hmm. that same thing. And you're working very hard, but also the downtime. I remember I actually had a friend who was one of the soldiers in the episode Mm-hmm. Um, who was one of the um, Russian soldiers. But, you know, we would sit around and, you know, shoot the in the tent and, you know, have craft services. And there was, a, in the downtime, there's also a lot of social time. So yeah. it, 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 it was really quite pleasant in that way as as well. Especially for the, you know, there's, I mean, there's sort of a, 
the extras, this Ricky Gervais. I mean, there's sort of a a cult of extra or background players. Right. Or yeah, you're mm-hmm. you're you're war buddies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you served in the war. Y'all were in the trenches. Y'all know they're like you know how things are actually. I mean, you just talked about it yourself when you were skating for ten hours. Yes. They're not asking Will Ferrell to do that for 10 hours. Like, <laughs> no. no, he's coming out of a trailer. He's, he's fine. He's in a coat. They're, they're making extras. They'd be like, yeah, you guys get it for like 10 hours or something. Like, we just need it for a shot. And yeah. I'm like, I mean, there's no like real amount of like grumbling that you can do or complaining or anything because it's what you signed up for because you love film. You right. want to contribute and create this. But it's also like, come on, man. I don't want to like skip for 10 hours. And like everyone, <laughs> all the extras understand that. But you do get to see the other side of it. And you say, my God, the, you know, the amount of time that people spend and the amount of money to make these, you know, to yeah. make these things too is, is really, I mean, like with The Spirited, it was shot in August it was a Christmas movie. They make it look like it's winter. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be New York, but they shot it in Boston. I mean, it's, you know, showbiz is kind of, it's fascinating in that way. Mm-hmm. And and uh, again, I, I mean, I would prefer to do television as opposed to movies if I had my choice. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit more, uh, I mean, I think it's easier on the, on the body to do yeah. TV. But, you know. I think maybe I have some more roles in me, certainly extra roles. roles. Well, we're definitely going to be trying to, you know, let us know. Like, reach out to us. Tell us us if you're anything coming up and I'll look for you. Depending on what what they're looking for. The thing is, I'd like to break into the Star Trek universe because my daughter and I are very, very, well, I should put a plug in for us, but we're very into Star Trek and we have a little uh, act and uh, we made a record. We sing songs about Star Trek. We made a what? record called That's adorable. 12 Song Mission. You can find it on the streaming services. 12 Song Mission, it's called. All right. And we have a little band we call the Shuttlecraft. The Shuttlecraft. And uh, we travel around. You know, we were on the Star Trek cruise and play. That is awesome. Play conventions or things like that. So, you know, I, I'm still in showbiz. Yeah, as yeah. As best I can be. But it was a long time ago. I mean, how many years? 1994. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Like almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Hey, actually, sorry, not to get too much off topic, but about Star Trek. I haven't, I haven't watched a lot of Star Trek, but I always, I I feel like I, I feel like it would be right up my alley. And I always ask my friends who are into Star Trek, what is, where's the best place to start? For someone who's getting into it. You you, you (laughs) probably want to start at the beginning. Okay. But but you might want to go with the next generation first. Mm-hmm. I mean, next gen is, and they're also sort of rebooting the Picard and the next generation thing, mm-hmm. which is continuing now again. Wow. So, nice. but yeah, people love them all. But you know, my favorite, my daughter's favorite is the Voyager series with Kate okay. Mulgrew as the captain. Okay. We really enjoyed that as the, really the best of the series, but you know, you, Spock and Kirk are icons of right. the original series, and it is kind of good to get that whole, the <laughs> beginning, you know, to start from the beginning in some way. Yeah. So this was good. I really appreciate, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we got to talk about it. I enjoyed, again, reliving some of those, yeah. those memories. And, uh, and as I say, it was, you know, it was important for me at the time to, you know, get a part and to get on a set and see how things worked and, um, it was important for me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I got to say, you know, hearing stories from people that were involved in a show in all different capacities is incredibly fascinating because we've gotten some where like we've had um, and the animal handler. We've had Michael Lane, the uh, episode director. Uh, now we're having people like you that are actually in there in the show acting and we're getting all these different perspectives in a way. It's I think like the best metaphor that I can think of off the top of my head is kind of like a archaeology dig because Northern <laughs> Exposure is from 30 years ago. It's not on any streaming services. Yes. It's it's just you you it's very hard to uncover stories from those days. So when we hear about this, all of these like you just talked about, like, you know, I think it's an amazing tidbit about <laughs> Rob Moore and Janine Turner. It's like hearing stories about the uh, like 1950 days of like the blacklist and like, you know, when like um, they were going against writers that were accused of communism. It's like very similar to that. We're like, man, you're like never going to hear these stories again. It's it's actually, so old. Some of these actors, a, a lot of them, well, some of them have passed away. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. the, right. um, Peg, the storekeeper and the, the other old fellow who has the Walt lines at the end of the letter. I um, mean, even yeah. the showrunner himself has passed away. Um, John Falsey. What about uh, what about Barry? Is Barry still Barry around? Barry Corbin's still alive, and mm-hmm. I, I think right, he's. Okay. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's in like the new Scorsese movie or something. Probably in a really? very small okay. part. Ooh. Oh, that's good to know. That's Could good I, to am know. Am I wrong? Let's see. Uh, I should check real fast so I don't have to punch this in. Uh, Barry Corbin, Killers of the Flower Moon, coming later this year. No, yeah. Oh, actually, sorry. Here's a this uh, one last question. Uh, no, or, no, I'm, that's fine. But I do have another question. Just I've heard stories from, and then another, uh, Harvest Moon had told us this, Charles. But um, And then I've read stories that, uh, especially like in the heyday of the show, there would be crowds gathered in Rosalind watching it. Where, where was this a time oh. of year? Was, was there like a crowd or no? Yes, that could. That's good. That reminds me. Actually, uh, we were out. Uh, I don't know why we were out. We were out somewhere in one of the outdoor scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, Cliffy from Cheers, John Ratzenberger, showed up. What? He was just <laughs> traveling. I think he showed up literally in his RV. And he was like oh, in the set just... going, wow, this is huh? <laughs> is he like a fan? Uh, so yes, is he like I a fan of the show or something? I had, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> and yeah, there were quite a few people in the out- outdoor scenes. Um, That's funny. Although this, I rem- they, it was pretty muddy. I, I was watching yeah. the, the show again mm-hmm. and they, they were putting down running boards. I forget exactly the time of year. I think it was kind of springtime maybe when we... Okay shot it but it's hard to remember in seattle it's fairly temperate out there but yes so people were and then you know i'm sure that other people like cliff ratzenberger or or not cliff ratzenberger but um john ratzenberger Ratzenberger. who plays cliff and all of the other things that he does (laughs) um all the other voiceover work yeah i remember he was uh you know he just came by maybe he knew the director or someone else uh, on on the set, but or maybe he just loved the show, you know. Just or maybe he <laughs> yeah. was, a, yeah, maybe he was a fan of the show. <laughs> that's funny. And he was hanging out. I had that's forgotten. So cool. That's funny. That's, that's funny. I had forgotten hilarious. about that. Yeah, <laughs> it was. So, yeah, it was very popular. It was very mm-hmm. popular, and I had a lot of friends and actors who were on there who had you know who did did a lot of good work too. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were sad when it left because it was you know. Um, you know, one of the things also that started after Northern Exposure 
was all of the shows began shooting up in Vancouver mm-hmm. because okay. uh, like the X-Files at that time and yeah. mm-hmm. you know, almost all the shows now shoot up in Vancouver because the, right. the, the, the money's better, the exchange rate's better and, and things like that. Um, yeah. But this was one of the shows they could have shot this in in Vancouver, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, who knows why they chose this over Vancouver? But you know, they're especially, I guess, all throughout the series, like they have great vistas in Rosalind or you know, up, yeah. up in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm sure you could yeah. see some of that as well in Toronto, Vancouver. But uh, whatever they did, they they picked a good spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a great great place to to shoot some film yes and it's fun to watch the episodes just to see the scenery too, too. yeah I mean, because it is very beautiful out there very it's beautiful a, hu- a huge part of the show i think is the just that that beautiful scenery not that the swampy um <laughs> louisiana coast is not beautiful too in its own way for sure. right. yeah well we get a lot nah. of we get a lot of tv production down here in, in new orleans as well uh and some movies every once in a while well, I mean, I mean it. Uh, you have our email and like our Twitter. Like, let me know where to look for you if you're, even if it's like a background role. Uh, I'm always curious. And if we, always curious. Listen, there's going to be a Star Trek con- convention yeah. awards sometime. <laughs> yes, they canceled the one in Seattle this year, so there's mm. got to be one uh, uh, sometime. And I do actually, I really, I'm a music person, and so right. New Orleans really is a place that I have to get to. Uh, yeah. at, at some point. Yeah. You'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Come before we, uh, sink underwater. Cause it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The yeah. roads are like, I mean, they've always been this way, but I feel like particularly now are so bad, but yeah, this the time is time's <laughs> running out. That's right. Listen, if you think of anything else, a question yeah. or something, you can email me or, or, you know, whatever. I'm happy to jump on, yeah. on zoom again. If I yeah. think of you know, of anything else, I, you know, I'll be interested to hear what people think of this episode too. That's really, right. I, I never got a sense of that really. And then yeah. the, you know, and then this, the series ended too. It's over. It's um, over. Yeah. Well, no, we got to thank you big time for in the first place, like just reaching out to us, such a big deal. And thank you so much for doing that. And uh, this has been such a lovely chat and very nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah, I had a good time. I mean, I'm not a big podcast listener person, yeah. <laughs> I, but I've wanted well, to do my own podcast, and I do. I do listen to some. Yeah, there's way too many Star Trek podcasts. Right, I mean, it's just like right, right. It's mind blowing the numbers of them. No, yeah, I mean, there's podcasts for everything, even Northern yeah. Exposure. There's multiple, and uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, I know you said you're not a big uh, podcast listener. Our episodes are very long, so this one's probably going to be like well, that's, two hours no, long. That's good. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting better. I had to do some traveling, and I do yeah. quite a bit of commuting now. And my daughter is is a very avid podcast listener. Okay, but I'll you know I'll I'll whenever the episode comes out, I'll give you the little hyperlink so you can skip ahead to this sure, section sure. if you want. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm not. <laughs> well, it's going to be buried no, no, I, behind I, like no, two hours. I want to listen to a couple of the others. In fact, I'm yeah. kind of inspired to do. I don't have the complete collection. I only ever bought this, ep, you know, this this season off of eBay years yeah. ago. So I would have my little mm-hmm. piece for a reel or whatever I was going to do with it. But yeah. I would like to kind of go back and and yeah. and revisit the yeah, yeah. get yeah. the greatest hits in. 
Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. Yeah. So we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Charles next week, we're going to be talking about season six, episode seven, full upright position. I remember this being a very important episode. So, uh, we'll talk about it next week, Charles. I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Chris for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.